Welcome to The County Agent, an educational podcast based out of the Barber County Extension Office, a local unit within the Kansas State Research and Extension System. Well, welcome to our podcast. This is our first edition or our first attempt at doing a podcast here for Barber County Extension. Uh, I'm Justin Goodnote, your local Extension Agent, and today I'm joined uh, by Dr. Tarpoff. Uh, AJ is one of our, our veterinarians up on campus, does a lot of work with extension, and uh, we're going to visit about a few things today. I think we'll start, I think, AJ, if you're okay with it, this time of year around this part of the country, we're working a lot of baby calves, uh, giving a lot of vaccinations and whatnot, and uh, we'd like to visit somewhat, you know, the, the extent is up to you of uh, vaccine storage, vaccine handling, all of that, maybe even are we given the vaccines in, in, the, in the right location of the animal? And then uh, something I, that I've seen that really bothers me, and I think it bothers you, uh, how do we clean our equipment when we're done? Uh, so if you would, uh, you can go ahead and introduce yourself to those that, that may not know you, and we'll dive right in. Absolutely, Justin. Yeah, I'm AJ Tarpoff. I'm the Beef Extension Veterinarian for Kansas State University. Uh, based out of the animal science department here in Manhattan, and in uh, you know I've I've been involved with the beef cattle industry uh, literally my entire life, and uh, I'm, I'm fortunate enough right now, and and you know where I am in this position that I'm uh, one of the lead instructors for beef quality assurance programs uh, in the state of Kansas, uh, which I, I really enjoy really enjoy visiting with producers to talk about some of these best management practices that you just brought up, Justin. And you really kind of hit that trigger. I was doing a BQA uh, meeting in Northeast Kansas, North Central Kansas last night. And we had this very conversation, you know, the same conversation about vaccines. How do we handle them? How do we, how do we manage that situation? And I kind of wrap it up to, 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 to wrap my head around it is vaccines. When we utilize them in our livestock production systems, they're insurance policies and they're an investment in our animals. Okay, uh, every vaccine has a purpose, uh, regardless of what the situation is, regardless of the program that that has been set up between, you know, a producer and their local veterinarian. It, you know, we are using those as investments. So it's it's really important for us as, you know, people administering the products that we take great care to ensure that we're going to get that investment out of the product, out of the input that we're putting into those animals. Um, so I think it's starting with that understanding <laughs> kind of goes a really long way. And when it comes to vaccine handling, it, it starts at the manufacturer. Okay. Our pharmaceutical companies, their quality control on every step of production is so tight. There are, there is no threshold for, uh, you know, for, you know, uh, things not going correctly. You know, they've got too much on the line. So they have very strict quality control. Now, where we can run into issues is transportation, okay? It leaves the manufacturer, goes to a distributor, and then ultimately either comes, gets shipped directly to producers, goes to a vet clinic, goes to uh, wherever, it, uh, uh, you know, a feed store, wherever that product might go, we have opportunities for, for issues, okay? And most of that comes at temperature. Temperature control is absolutely critical when it comes to a lot of our animal health products, not just vaccines. Um, this is where I always joke around with producers. How, how many of you have, Justin, have you read the label 
cover to cover on a vaccine that you've utilized on your operation? Uh, actually, I have. I'm kind of a nerd. So you got to remember, I came out of the food safety world, labels the law. And, and, when, and I'll just interject for a second when you're talking about that transportation and everything, it brings me back. And, and you would know this from, from your family's background in the, in the meat business and restaurant business is when you receive something, it's probably a pretty, pretty good idea to take a temperature of it if it's supposed to be held cold. Yep. And, and, the re, and you know, I've had somebody say, well, how do you know it's supposed to be held cold? And I always tell them, look at the box. It'll tell you right there. <laughs> tell well, you specifically what temperatures. And not just cold. You brought up it's the right temperatures. Yeah. You know, when we on the food side, on the beef side, if it's frozen beef, it has to arrive frozen, right? Or we had transportation issues. Uh, when we're talking about animal health products, it's refrigerated. Well, what does refrigerated mean? It, well, it's it's 35 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, if it gets too cold, then if it gets too cold. If it freezes, we have detrimental effects and we have reduced efficacy. If it gets too hot, especially with a lot of our modified live viral type products that we'll administer, uh, that's extremely detrimental, but we can kill that live virus where it's not going to replicate inside the animal like it should. So we don't get the, the immune system to actually respond like it should. Uh, so transportation is one of our critical control areas that we really need to keep an eye on. And as producers, veterinarians, people receiving product, it's kind of our due diligence to keep an eye on that. I, I mean, I can tell you multiple situations where, hey, just through transportation, uh, there was a breakdown, okay? The FedEx truck or UPS or, you know, USPS, whoever it was, they had, they had a truck go down all of a sudden that, you know, had a load, had a uh, shipment coming in of, of product, of vaccine, and it's 100 degrees out. Or it, it's hot and it sat on the back of a truck over the weekend before it could get reloaded. Okay, that, that's a situation that, you know, is out of our control. But the only we, reason that we would know is if we monitor that arrival temperature. And this, is, this goes for vet clinics or uh, for folks that, you know, plan ahead. Know, understand when that product is supposed to arrive. And if it doesn't arrive on time, make sure that you test that and try to measure, okay, it got hot. Now it goes back on the liability of the shipping company. Yeah, you, so, you make a good point, and I'll even take it just a little step in another direction. That applies to us as producers. Mm -hmm. uh, if if I'm going uh, by the by the farm store to pick up some vaccinations, and it's supposed to be kept cold, probably not a good idea if I if I don't have that held cold to make a lot more stops on my way home. Because for me to do that, it's going to involve you know, oh, 40, 50 mile round trip. Mm -hmm. And every time I stop between here and there is one more opportunity for that stuff to rise in temperature and become, you know, basically relatively ineffective. And, and sometimes we forget that they throw that, uh, that little vial in a little sack. And I tell you anymore, I always say, you got a little carton with an, an ice pack we can put this in and keep it cold just in case I get distracted on the way home. And, and it never fails. They always got one, you know, so I always got to remember that myself as a producer plan ahead. Yeah. Um, so, and, and that, that was, you rolled that right into the next stage of kind of transportation. We talked about shipping, but it's really transportation. A lot of, you know, I, I know a ton of producers, they buy great straight from their veterinarian, straight from a store, regardless, they are the ones transporting. 
And if you're going to be doing that any length of distance, we really need to have those vaccines. If they're supposed to be refrigerated, transport them in some type of cooler, uh, some type of shipping cooler, uh, even a regular cooler, but have some ice packs available to make sure it maintains that temperature. Um, now, when we do that, we do have to be careful that we don't freeze the product. Uh, so, I mean, crinkled up brown paper, some crinkled up newspaper, some bubble wrap, something around uh, to make sure that we don't have direct contact with the ice pack to that vaccine, uh, just to make sure that we don't inadvertently freeze that. Uh, but Justin, in your situation, if you have a 50 mile round trip, have a couple extra stops, every stop seems to add another 20 minutes, uh, you know, bringing your own cooler and having some ice packs just because, you know, hey, I'm going to be a little while. That needs to be my first stop. I need to make sure that I I do my due diligence for quality control until I get it home. Yeah, you know, and, and people around here will know what I'm talking about when I say that's your opportunity when you go to quote unquote town, yep. you know, and you never go to town for one thing, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's once you're there, you're driving around doing something else, your wife calls, needs something else. And so it's always something I've got to be thinking about, you know, well, later today, I'm going uh, across down the road to the local farm store. I say local farm store. It's about 20, 25 mile drive down there. And I'll pick up some vaccines for some cattle and for some goats. And I'll take a little cooler with me because I never know if my wife's going to text me and say, hey, can you run over here? Can you do this? Am I going to make it out of town without going by the Mexican restaurant for chips and queso? I mean, those things happen. Since you were out, might as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, so transporting it, then we get it home. And I think this is, I, I challenge a lot of producers to this is, uh, where do we store products at home? Okay, on ranch at, at, at your home, you know, it, I, I guess I'll, I'll set up the typical scenario. Well, we, we store our vaccines out in the shop or out in the barn or out in the garage. And the the, the refrigerator that we have out there used to be the refrigerator in, in the kitchen, but it was kind of acting up and well, it was time to upgrade. So we upgraded that and we redid the kitchen and we moved the old one because it still functioned and can still keep some beverages cool. And then we throw it out in the shop or throw it out in the garage with the breezeway and it, it kind of ends up being the catch-all, right? So yeah. um, you know, there's there's been a lot of work done on this, just looking at variation of storage temperatures and Believe it or not, there's the vast majority of producers, and not and not just producers. I'm not pointing fingers, but other refrigeration, you know, whether at different clinics or farm stores, are they do they keep temperature appropriately? We have a lot of fluctuation with some of those outdoor refrigerated systems. Okay, uh, those compressors kick on only at certain times, and when they're not in an insulated, temperature controlled area like a barn or a un unregulated garage. Uh, boy, those compressors, it goes really cold and then it waits till it gets hot and then it goes really cold. Uh, so we can start seeing some of that big variation. And this is where, if you're concerned, one, we try not to have long-term storage of our products at home as much as we can. Uh, two is monitoring that temperature variation. And it, it's as simple as, as a thermometer. Uh, there's a lot of different refrigerator thermometers that are available. We have really fancy ones. Uh, when I was in practice, had one that was uh, hooked up to our vaccine walk-in cooler uh, that was actually set up through the alarm system. So if anything got, if you left the door open too long, 
I can get a phone call from the security company telling me that, that the, nice. the temperature is out of whack. <laughs> so uh, there's even some of those available for like at home use for producers, which is pretty neat. Um, I've, I've also played around, you know, the uh, the uh, digital clocks that you can have on the wall that you can also have the th uh, thermostat uh, outside and it'll read to each other. It uh, doesn't work very well for a deep freeze, but it will work for some refrigerators that it, it'll still transmit that data. So you can look up at the digital clock and see what your uh, what your uh, temperature is inside your refrigerator. So uh, the hang-in ones, the sensors, there's a lot of different ways to be able to check that. Uh, but what I see when I talk to a lot of folks is they really have no idea. They've never checked. And you know, even a, even a $5 or $3 or $10 thermometer that you can pick up anywhere, uh, can really go a long way just on doing our part for monitoring, making sure the temperature is where it should be. So <clears throat> one of the things I like to share with folks, and it's it's from that previous career, and it's the same with this, AJ, is just because you got that thermometer, uh, you got to be cognizant of where you place that in your refrigeration unit. If you place that up uh, near the fans, you're going to get a false reading. You're going to think everything's colder than it really is because it's getting that constant air on it. Where we talked about in the old food safety world is you place that where you think it would be the warmest part of the unit. And to me, that's up by the door because that's going to be opened. Uh, depending on, on your refrigerator, it could be open multiple times uh, through a day or what have you. And it gives you an idea of Okay, if this thing is 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 hanging up around forty eight degrees, uh, with all the movement, we probably need to turn this down a little bit to compensate for that. Uh, and then uh, just paying attention to it. You know, I've I've got two different refrigerators myself. One that's uh, closer to me at the house. One that's up in the in the barn. Uh, that's basically for water so I don't have to walk back to the house, you know, and uh, we will on occasion keep some stuff in there that you can bet. I don't know how many other people do this, but I hate losing money. So every time I open that refrigerator and I grab a bottle of water, I'm looking at that thermometer, seeing what the rain, where it's at. Because if it's not accurate, then uh, we need to figure something out before we put some more valuable stuff in it. And so I think there's it's one thing to have that thermometer. Uh, it's another thing to pay attention to it because what you're putting in there is an investment. Things are expensive already way, the way it is. We don't need to be rebuying re stuff uh, for no particular reason other than you know, uh, maybe a, bit, it, a little bit of laziness. That, that, that's a great point. And within that uh, refrigerator, I know I, I run a couple of different uh, refrigerators and each one of them have really cold areas and warmer areas. Uh, so moving that around, making sure, e even if you're, if you've been using it for a while, uh, let, you know, a lot of folks already know, hey, if I put it on this part of the top shelf, it's going to freeze. If I put it down here, it might not be as cold. Uh, so have that understanding on, on where that good area, the good quality control area, because uh, boy, I, I was cooking eggs this morning and at the top of my refrigerator in my, uh, in my kitchen is where I keep my eggs. And if I keep, if I push that egg carton a little bit too far back, those back eggs always freeze and uh, trying to fry up some frozen eggs is all, often, often uh, pretty entertaining in the morning. Yeah. And boy, all, all I wanted was a little bit of food. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So 
uh, something that's kind of popped in my mind, uh, unless you have another direction you want to go, is so we get our vaccines. We know that they were uh, transported at the right temperatures. They've been held at the right temperatures at the ranch. It's time to go shoot side with it uh, to put them to work. Is it a good idea to get all your vaccines out there at once and let a reptator chip? Or should we be more geared towards let's only use this much here we're possibly going to be changing needles at some point after so many head, then we can introduce the rest of the vaccine from here. What's your thoughts? Yeah, so, uh, and I'll give you my personal preference for uh, for some of this. Uh, number one, when we're going out into the field, uh, often we're working cattle that we're not close to refrigeration, right? We're out in the, out in the pasture, we're out in the, at a far working facility, wherever that might be. Typically, we don't have our refrigeration source right right next to us. Um, so, for those circumstances, I I, I like to do something. I, I I have a I have a transportation cooler, and then I have a shoot site cooler. Uh, so, essentially, I have a nice cooler that is has ice packs, and I have all of my product in that what I call transportation cooler. I throw that in the pickup; it's ready to go. It's a good solid cooler, and it's gonna it's gonna keep cold, you know, all day. I, I don't have to worry about that getting warm. Uh, then I have my shoot side cooler. And the shoot side cooler is just what I'm working with at that time. I'm sure many producers have seen some of these. Uh, uh, you can actually stick your syringe guns into them. So it, it protects them from the sunlight, uh, still keeps them cool while you're working shoot side. Because long and behold, we're going to have a delay. We have a group of animals didn't want to work in. We had to go sort of sort of cow off. We took a break for lunch where we'll have kind of delays, well, we still have product that might be mixed and ready to go. Uh, we need to protect that from the sunlight and still maintain that, that cool temperature up until we actually administer it in, inside that animal. So for transportation, getting out to where we're working cattle, I like to, I, I run, you know, the two cooler, <laughs> the, the two cooler, so to speak, is the transportation, then I have the shoot side. Every time I run out of what I have, I only, I only pull out what I'm using at the time. If I'm using a, a product that I have to mix, like a modified live uh, vaccine, I pull out one bottle, I mix it, it goes, it, it, whatever's still left in the vial goes straight into the, the shoot side cooler. And I, I've got my full syringe and what's left in that. When I run out of that, that's when I go back to the transportation cooler and get the next, next set. Uh, so that keeps everybody on the same page. We mix as we go. We only get out what we need at that time that we're not, uh, we're not, you know, mixing everything up front because once we mix a product like those modified lives, they're only good for an hour. Okay. After an hour, we start having degradation that that product isn't going to work like it should. So that's why we, we understand how many animals are we're going to work. Okay. And that goes into purchasing. If we have multiple groups that we're going to hit that day, maybe buying one 50, you know, 50 dose vial isn't the best option because it's gonna take all day to go work those 50 hit. Uh, maybe we need to buy several 10 dose files to work some of those smaller groups of animals. Uh, that's where kind of planning ahead, understanding how many animals we have in some of those groups and then planning accordingly and making our purchase decisions off of that. You know, you talk about the shoot side cooler. Uh, <clears throat> those, are, those are available for purchase, uh, but I'll, I'll throw another idea out there. If you, if you got 
any any type of skills whatsoever. It doesn't take much because believe me, I've made one and I am I am not that talented. Uh, last year I made a shoot side cooler, and I think it cost me when I was when it was all said and done, it was around thirty dollars to make mm -hmm. it. Went and bought a cooler from uh, and and actually could have got it cheaper, but bought this cooler from a grocery store, not a quote unquote variety store. So the grocery store, it cost a little bit more. It was the one that was left on the shelf in the summer. And so got it, uh, went over to the, uh, well, it's a, I don't want to say farm store. It's kind of the catch-all store. It's got farming, plumbing, Hardware. automotive, everything. Uh, we got some drain pipe out of there. Uh, what else we yeah, that's about that's about it we had the saw and, and uh or had the drill and the blade and everything and and i mean in no time at all made one of these sealed it up you know might have got off a little bit on a few cuts but sealed it up with a little bit of foam spray and uh that thing works slick uh and, and like i said that was for around 30 35 dollars or less uh i've seen some of these available uh, at some different places and i'll assure you they don't they're not that cheap. <laughs> no, I mean, they, they have some fancy ones that look like Yeti coolers that are yeah. high end. They spend, they're a couple hundred bucks. I'll be honest, I've actually made them shoot side with a pocket knife and a couple of pieces of PVC that were laying, uh, laying around. Um, I just used a styrofoam cooler with some of those thick transportation ones and just kind of sawed a hole, you know, two holes with, uh, yeah. with my pocket knife, uh, stuck the PVC through them and poured some ice at the bottom. All of a sudden, I could stick my syringes straight into there, uh, protect the needle, keep them cold out of the sun, uh, but also be able to store a little bit in there while I was working. Yeah. Uh, something that kind of struck me, I just remembered, I told you I was a nerd, and I, and I will read labels on, <laughs> on stuff. Uh, even, even if it's not a modified live, you know, some of these, like, uh, I'm getting out of your world talking about like a goat CD&T. Yeah, it, it would be similar to a black leg multivalent yeah. vaccine for cattle. So and yeah, it, some of our, our, our traditional, highly effective killed products are clostridials, which the CDT for, uh, for goats and sheep, you know, it's the same thing. It's a clostridial, it's a three-way clostridial instead of a seven-way clostridial. So uh, those are killed products, okay? Uh, most of those still have, you know, once you poke that bile, uh, some of them, you, can be stored room temperature. Some almost a lot of them just recommend uh, refrigeration or at least refrigeration after you puncture the top. Um, so those products, the biggest risk on those, you know, they, they have a little bit more temperature tolerance. They're pretty stable, but if we freeze those, we can have some pretty detrimental effects. Uh, so that product, in order for the killed products to work appropriately, they have an addition to the vaccine. Uh, it's called an adjuvant, and that adjuvant is what stimulates the immune system to respond to these killed particles, essentially. And that adjuvant, if it separates from those killed particles, um, we, we won't have the effect. We can actually have some more detrimental effects from that vaccine uh, if we have that separation from that, that adjuvant. Now, now, when you talk about that, is that, say we hold that bottle up, is there going to be kind of a milky look and then more of a clear look? Is it is there a separation that that, that so no, that, you know, no, that or is that just normal? 
No, so that can be normal. So some of those killed products, they're they're in what's called solution. Uh, so that means you have a lot of uh, particles with some type of density. They have a weight to them. Over time, it, and since it's just it's mixed into a fluid, over time it can settle out a little bit. Uh, so for a lot of our killed products, when handled appropriately, you still have to make sure that they haven't settled, uh, that they are mixed appropriately to make sure that, that we don't have some of that settling issue uh, because it's a solution. So it's not, uh, you know, think about it, uh, milk, okay? If, if you get fresh milk that's non-homogenized, right, it'll separate if, it, if you get it straight from the dairy or if anybody's ever seen that. Uh, and that's a process where they make sure that it all mixes together. Um, well, essentially with our vaccines, it'll be mixed up really well, but it can slowly start to separate in, so in uh, storage. Uh, so that's why sometimes we do have to make sure it's properly mixed, that we don't have settling, that we, you know, we don't shake it up really hard, but we just sit there and, and work that vial around to make sure that, that, that it is a proper solution. And uh, I've seen on some of them also, I think it's, and I think it's very important as a producer that we do take that time to, to see what that label says, because some of these it will say, use the entire contents once you've punctured it. Uh, that doesn't mean, now to me, you can clarify this to me, I may be wrong. That doesn't mean that, say we use half that bottle today and we were supposed to use the entire contents that I wait another five months and then use the rest of it then and think it's gonna be safe to use, or I'm gonna get the same uh, results uh, or, uh, efficacy. Mm -hmm. uh, so how important is it if it says to use the entire contents once you've opened it to use the entire contents or get rid of it? Right. So, and part of that is, is just the, the due diligence of the product. Um, whenever we puncture a sealed vial, that it, it, it's a sterile vial. Every time we puncture into it, we have an opportunity we are introducing contaminants. Um, so even keeping under refrigerated temperatures, the longer we keep using that product, it's the higher buildup of contaminants that gets into that vial. So it, it, it's eroding the integrity of what that product was designed to do. Uh, you know, a good rule of thumb, if you, it, you know, you got a black leg, you have a CDT, uh, using it within a week uh, or maybe a little bit longer than a week, even, on, you know, making sure everything was, you, you use a clean needle going into the bottle you go into the bottle as minim minimal amount of times as possible. If you look at the top of your vial and it's got multiple needle punctures, you can see through it, that <laughs> needs to get tossed, okay? Um, I, but after they're, they're punctured, they're really not meant to have long-term storage for those vaccine products. Uh, you know, so if you only vaccinate animals twice a year and you still had some leftover from the spring and you're vaccinating now, you know, it, it's time to upgrade, okay? It's, it's time to toss that product and, and get some others. And thankfully, I, you know, I, and I know none of us like throwing anything away, uh, but you know, our CDT, our clostridials, those killed products, I, they're one of the more effective products that we have. They're also one of the cheapest. So even the, you know, just the couple of CCs left in that vial, you know, it's, it's not a tremendous loss to that operation. It's, so we're, we're very similar to say, you got your package of lunch meat, a ready to eat food that Oscar Meyer, whoever the producer is or manufacturer puts a use by date on that package. It's way out there. You look at it and you think, well, this, there ain't no way this stuff can stay good for till 2023. That means until it's opened, 
die yeah. like our vaccines. Once you've opened that package of lunch meat, the clock starts right then. And, and just like what we said on these vaccines, or you said you got about a seven day window and then you may have some issues with listeria or whatever else with that lunch meat. It's, it's so I appreciate you sharing that. Um, when we're given vaccines to livestock, how important is it that we uh, are uh, given these in the proper area of a calf or a lamb or a goat or a, or a pig? Why is this important that we've identified specific areas to, to, to give these shots? It's all of the importance, okay? Um, so we, we got to remember, these are food producing animals. They are going to enter the human food chain. Okay, we have spent all the money, time, effort, tears, blood, you name it, to raise this animal correctly. Okay, to, to put in all of the inputs. And we are going to send that and sell that animal to the next level. It's going to get finished. It's going to go uh, ultimately to harvest. Okay, and now we're harvesting meat where we, we truly have that. We raised the animal. Now we're reaping the benefits, which is the, the high quality protein of what, what all of us actually raise. Um, things like injections and where we give those injections and appropriate injection sites and, and uh, getting that where it needs to be uh, has everything to do with meat quality. If we inadvertently or if we inject animals in the wrong location, we can actually damage muscle. We damage the, the overall value of that entire carcass. Uh, due to trim, due to possible injection site infections, uh, due to injection site lesions that obviously could, uh, in some circumstances, could make it all the way to our consumer where they see a piece of scar tissue in some of their uh, sliced roast, roast beef that they bought at the supermarket. Uh, you know, the, and that's, that, that's not what we want people to see when they pick up our product. I mean, we, they want to see that, that, that valuable cut, the tasty product, the nutritiousness of that meat product that they're buying from us. Um, so location is critical. So beef quality assurance, uh, our location for injection site is in the neck of animals. Okay. And why the neck? Everybody always asks why the neck? Um, for a couple of different reasons. One, it's a relatively localized area that if there is an issue, if we had a, a an abscess formation, if we had something along those lines, one thing is it's going to stay right in the neck. It's not going to it's not going to spread to another location or impede more of that animal. Uh, so we can, we can localize it, we can treat it, we can make sure that it, it's taken care of. Two is the value of the muscle cuts underneath the, the, the skin of the neck. Um, all of that tissue is, 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 it's trim essentially. So if there is uh, a lesion or if there's uh, some scar tissue, you know, that's easily trimmed out and we don't reduce the overall value and the eatability of the entire carcass. Um, when we couple that with say the back leg, okay? Yeah, it's a big, huge target. Um, if we have a lesion, if we have an infection, if we have an abscess, it's such a large area and there's nothing separating. Because of that, if we inject high and we have an issue, it can spread infection all the way down that leg. And all of a sudden we have a major, major issue, not only for the animal, but also for the carcass value of what we're trying to raise. Uh, so our injection site triangle, so to speak, for cattle uh, and, and for lambs and for sheep, um, you know, it's, we're trying to reduce any, any damage to the carcass, but get a safe area 
in an effective area to be able to, to administer that medication. And that's the, the injection site triangle of the neck, okay? Uh, the four areas of that triangle are in front of the shoulder, above the spine, and below what's called the nuchal ligament. And that nuchal ligament, I, you know, it's a weird word. It, it's the ligament that uh, runs from the back of the head to the withers in between the shoulder blades. And that's what keeps the head upright since these animals are quadrupeds or on all fours. Uh, so their neck doesn't have to carry all that weight. They have this big ligament that actually holds that, holds their head upright. Um, and we need to make sure we're below that because it actually runs right along the top side of the neck. And if we get into there, uh, that's where we can see a lot of stiff, a lot of inflammation in that ligament. The animals don't want to move their head side to side or down into the feed bunk or the water trough. They seem really stiff. It's like, ah, they, they're just reacting to that vaccine. It's like, well, actually, more often than not, it's not the vaccine that they're reacting to. It was the placement of that vaccine and where it actually went. So just to kind of do a little sidebar here, when was the push? And I know it had to come from like uh, BQA and whatnot. When was the push to really educate on where injections need to be made? Because I'll, I'll just shoot you straight, AJ. 25, 30 years ago, a lot of producers, unless it was something that went under the skin, they were giving them shots in the, in the, in the rump area and whatnot or just wherever. It was just get it in them. And now, uh, well, I know through my years uh, butchering, you'd be breaking down carcasses and whatnot. And for instance, in the ham of a pork carcass, you're whacking up some, some ham steaks and there's that one little area, maybe it's the size of a nickel, maybe it's the size of a quarter, but it's a completely different color and texture than the rest of the meat. And so I know, for years, people just was put, put it wherever. And, and now, uh, I, I would tell you, if most of the producers I've been around that if we're working cattle or whatnot, they're, they're administering it in the, in the correct area. But when was that push to really educate? So uh, you mentioned 25, 30 years ago. It was about 30 years ago. It was the early 90s. Uh, you know, the, they recently did a nationwide national beef quality audit. And that looked at all of the beef uh, that was produced in that year. They had this huge audit to figure out where are we having issues? Where are we losing value? And I, I don't have the exact date. I think it was 1991 that it came out with. Uh, but then it, what, what came out of that audit was, wow, we are losing an enormous amount. We are losing millions of dollars as an industry a year due to injection site lesions and trim loss. And as an industry, we came together and said, look, we need a better way to do this. Every aspect of our industry works extremely hard and we're losing value every step of the way just by how we give injections. And that's kind of where it began. It began. It, this was an industry driven initiative. This wasn't something that the government or USDA or FSIS said, you have to do this. This was an industry, us saying, while wow, we're, we're leaving a lot on the table and we all make money every step of our, our, beef, our, our industry, our beef industry, if we sell more pounds, all of us, you know, do better. And the one way that we could immediately sell more pounds is if we didn't have as, as much trim or as much loss and as much decrease in, 
and sellability of the carcass just due to injection sites. So that's where it was, it was chosen that we made the initiative that instead of intracal, it was IM, intramuscular or subcutaneous, just under the skin in the neck triangle, okay? And that's one of the huge success stories of, our, of any industry uh, for that matter, yeah. to have an industry-driven initiative that has had that big of impact on our overall sellability of product and wholesomeness of the products that we actually sell. So uh, I, I know a lot of people remember kind of when that got initiated and kind of, oh yeah, that was a while back. And, um, and we've come a long way since then. And I think we, we all need to be proud of that, that we, we made that decision. You know, the industry made that decision. We changed on our own accord because we knew that's what was best. You bet. Good stuff. Good stuff. People being responsible. Exactly. And because we all care about the products, we care about the animals, we care about that end product that we're producing. And because we're, we're, we're all meat producers, we're beef producers, we're lamb producers, you know, regardless of what, uh, you know, what livestock species you're working with, you're a meat producer, that's going to ultimately end up on somebody's plate somewhere. <laughs> so, and, and I, I think we take enough pride in what we do that we realize that value. So, Say we're, 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 we're working our, our livestock, we're, we're given the proper vaccination in the proper area, proper area. we finish up, uh, we, we discard of our unused vaccines the appropriate way. All we're left with is uh, our syringes for cleaning up. And something that I've seen, and, and AJ ain't gonna lie to you, I've seen it years ago, I seen it just a couple of weeks ago too. <laughs> yeah. You go over. Now I'm not saying me. I do not do this. I'm gonna preface this by saying this drives me nuts. I'm an old food auditor or food safety auditor. So cleanliness is important to me. But you see the old boy go over the old gal with their syringe pistol and they draw up water out of the stock tank. They shoot it out a couple of times and throw it in the either in the box, the cardboard box, the actual toolbox with some, some stuff in it that's the, the, vet, the vet carrier, or they throw it in that, that vaccine storage cooler and then it just goes back to the shop and stays there. Could be a week, could be five months. You never know. But I mean, can we visit a little bit about how we need to be cleaning our equipment and, and is all equipment intended to be cleaned and reused, or is or is there some that just needs to be a single use, and, and you're done with it? If, if if you would please, absolutely. So we have reusable. I think I'll break it out into two separate types of uh, of syringes. We have uh, multi-dose reusable syringes. Okay, those are the ones that we pull out multiple doses at a time. Uh, usually, they're a mixture between plastic, metal, or glass. Uh, they have a large tube. Uh, I, I know everybody can, you know, picture in their mind those uh, those those pistol grip, uh, uh, you know, vaccine guns. Uh, those are reusable, and we'll talk about how to clean those. We also have disposable. Okay, disposable uh, vial. You know, they're just small uh, plastic syringes. You, they're individually wrapped. That you either pop them out of their little location, you pull up and uh, administer once. Those are a throwaway. Uh, those plastic uh, small little uh, syringes, you know, th those are not supposed to be cleaned and reused. That's not what they were designed to do. 
Uh, you use them once, you toss them. Kind of, kind of like the uh, the the empty tub that once held butter. That wasn't intended <laughs> to be used like Tupperware. Right. It, it was intended to hold butter, and when it was done, disposed of. Right. <laughs> Correct. Correct. <laughs> so the and it, you know, and I, I've seen reused ones. They leak. They don't work right, and it's almost impossible to get those. You know, we to truly sterilize those again is is challenging, just because that's not what they were designed to be able to do. Now, our reusable syringes, those are designed to be clean, okay? We can clean, we can remove a lot of the organic matter, we can clean out the tube, and let's kind of go through how I walk through, after I'm done working cattle, what I do with those vaccine guns. Uh, first and foremost, I, I, I'll take them, I take them back to the kitchen, okay? <laughs> I take them right back into the kitchen, and I go through my series of events. Number one is I remove all the organic matter on outside of the, the pistol itself. Okay, I take a scrub brush, hot water, and no soap, but I just sit there and I, I remove any manure, any dust, uh, the sweat from my hand on the pistol grip that I've been using all day. I remove all that organic matter and clean it up as, as good as I can on the outside. Uh, some of our products that we utilize are, are a little bit, uh, they, they have, can re, uh, leave a film on the inside of the tube. That's where next I will remove the tube. I will disassemble that entire syringe and I will clean the inside as well. Sometimes they come, uh, sometimes the manufacturer has little um, syringe brushes that we can uh, use a brush on the inside of that tube. Uh, so I'll, I'll kind of disassemble, re-clean everything, Okay. After I've cleaned everything uh, and I, I dry most of it, that's when I reassemble. And this is kind of the final step, the final stage of what I do. Uh, and this is one reason why I go back to the kitchen for this. Um, you know, then I go to the microwave. I end up, I end up boiling water, a cup or two of, of water in, in a microwave safe container, throw it in the microwave and I can microwave that until it's almost boiled. Uh, or boiling, and you can let it cool for a minute or two. After it's at that near boiling temperature, that's when I the syringe is already put back together. I can I can pull all that near boiling water into the syringe, and I can squirt the whole thing out. So I am pulling that hot that that sterilizing water into the syringe, and then I can then I can empty the whole thing out. Okay. Through that, I can sanitize and I can remove all, uh, almost all of the bacteria on the inside of that syringe. Uh, after I've done that a handful of times to make sure everything's nice and it got nice and warm, got nice and hot, I've used that, that near, near boiling water. I'll empty all that uh, water out. Uh, that's where I let everything dry, okay? I, I let the entire syringe dry uh, for about a day. I might hang it in the kitchen. Uh, or in an enclosed area where, where I'm not going to get a lot of dust or anything else on it. And once it's dry, so when I close that tube, I make sure everything's put together. I like to throw them, um, I, I mean, just little Ziploc bags, okay? Uh, once it's dry, once it's been cleaned, it's been dried for overnight at least, I throw it in a Ziploc bag, seal it, and then I can store it just about anywhere. I can put it into my vaccine cooler. Uh, I can store it in the uh, the refrigerator that's out in the uh, uh, you know out in the working chute area. Okay, I can store it in a Rubbermaid container uh, somewhere in your medic uh, you know your medicine shack. Okay, or your garage uh, or your house. I mean, so then it opens up opportunities to to be able to store it in different areas. I try to keep it out of the sun. 
and I try to keep those syringes in some type of temperature controlled area. Okay, because just the uh, the rubber bushings, things like that, they can uh, with too much heat and too much uh, too much sunlight uh, can actually degrade some of those uh, those O rings. Uh, the O rings are another uh, point of point of question. A lot of people, it's like, well, I you know I I use some type of lubrication on the O rings or uh, you know, I use a petroleum base or vegetable oil and people get confused anymore. We really don't even, uh, we don't even recommend lubricating the O-rings on those multi-dose syringes. Um, that the idea behind that is we have a good, fresh new one. Once it starts to break down or get brittle, we pop those off and we replace them. If you go anywhere where those, uh, syringes are sold, all over the place are the little uh, o rubber O-rings to be replaced. Now it's like, well, it's it's too brittle, and we, you know that we won't be able to lubricate. Well, as soon as you draw product, that first draw when you draw uh, a vaccine in, that first draw and the fluid that's in there is meant to lubricate that rubber O-ring. If the rubber O-ring's breaking down, hey, time to replace. So, just kind of to reiterate a couple things, we'll go to cleaning. Uh, potable water number one is potable water okay that for <laughs> human consumption okay uh, not out of the stock tank not out of the uh you know pumped in from the pond uh yep. potable water I've, I've run into that situation before where uh unfortunately the vaccine the guns were cleaned in non-potable water by accident and nobody really followed through on that on what, what they thought it was potable but it wasn't uh, we ended up with, uh, I mean, uh, several hundred animals having in, injection site lesions and uh, a secondary infection uh, just due to the bad, you know, the bad cleaning of those guns. Uh, boy, something after, very simple. Uh, something very simple. But yep. I threw away all the injection site guns, uh, set them up with all new ones, um, figured out what that problem was, and changed our, our sanitation and cleanliness on those those injection site guns and the problem went away, never happened again. And so we, we, we've got potable water. Uh, obviously we want the hot water, you know, you wanna be safe about things. So obviously I like, you said, it's boiling, it'll cool off just a touch. Now it doesn't mean cool to room temperature. It means right. don't, don't be putting your hands in boiling water. And, and, Causing a bigger issue, yeah. but no soap, no bleach, no quote unquote cleaners, because because those can affect the vaccines correctly, or I mean, they will affect the the vaccines. Yeah. So uh, regardless of how well we flush them out, if we use some type of disinfectant or a cleaner, it will leave some type of residue on the inside of the barrel of that vaccine gun. And when that happens, if we use modified live, you know, uh, you know, vaccine after that, we pull up that modified live. We have the, a live fragile virus on the inside of that barrel. Um, and that residue left over in the barrel is enough to deactivate that live virus and kill it. Um, so that's why we, we, we shy away from using disinfectants and things like that. We use near boiling water to help sanitize and remove that bacterial load. And you know, good clean water and a scrub brush, and removing the organic matter. I mean, that that's we're kind of back to the basics. And, and I'm a I'm a fan of the Ziploc bags, the big gallon bags. We put them in there. We always uh, have 
that individual syringe identified that the next time it's going to be used, it was used for what it was the previous time. It's not being used for multiple stuff. I'm just a stickler for that. I love them Ziploc bags because I know when I pull that thing out of there, it's clean. Because even if I put it in the cabinet, in the barn, in the house, the garage, wherever, it's going to collect dust at some point. And it's one of them, well, do we clean it or we just let it ride? So put that thing in a Ziploc bag. They don't cost hardly anything. <laughs> and it's but good to see. Right. It's always ready to go. Yep. Yeah. So um, is there anything else we need to touch on as is, is, as far as what we've been visiting about so far, yeah, I, I think the last and I think the last thing to, to discuss on the vaccination. We talked about handling. We talked about where we get vaccines and why. We talked about how to clean syringes. One thing we didn't touch base on is needles. Okay, uh, needle care, changing needles, uh, sharps containers. Uh, th those are all important things that often go overlooked. Okay. Um, when we when we're vaccinating animals, okay, what when is it recommended to change those needles? Okay, these are commercial animals. We're vaccinating a couple hundred head. Uh, we're going through. When do we change out that needle? Okay, well, first and foremost, we always change needles immediately if the needle bends or if it starts to feel. If we're feeling resistance going through the hide, we have to replace it. Replace it immediately. If we ding it off the uh, the end of the chute, we're going, we're in a hydraulic chute or a catch chute, and we're reaching through the metal bars, and we inadvertently hit one of the metal bars with the needle. Okay, that's going to burr and cause dullness on that needle. That happens. Take the ten seconds, pop the needle off, put a new one on before you give the next injection. As that needle, yeah, as you get older and you get like me, and you got bifocals and you misjudge that vaccine storage cooler. <laughs> Yeah, then end up stabbing. Too. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, you're not alone with that. When it happens, thank it, you. I mean, it, even without you know uh, bifocals or anything else, you got sunglasses on, working in the sun. You got sweat building up at the bottom. It almost acts as the bifocal. You, you never know. You can't quite yeah. see what you're doing. So no, you're not alone with that. I know my time is coming, but uh, <laughs> um, but no. So anytime we have some type of dole. And the reason for that is, it, it, I still have to remind some cowboys that, hey, it's not a competition on how many animals we can do with one needle, okay? Needles are super cheap, okay? <laughs> they are disposable. Uh, every time that, as it gets duller, uh, the tip of that needle starts to get frayed. It's almost like when you have a dull knife and you use a sharpening steel on it. Uh, you just try, we do that to, you know, hopefully straighten it back out. We can't do that with needles. As needles start to burr and they start to fold over, all they do is capture bacteria from the hide, from the hair, from the skin as we go in and out. Um, so every time we do that, the longer we wait to change that needle, the more bacteria, um, bacterial counts are actually on the tip of that needle. We inject that underneath the skin. We induce that underneath the skin, but beyond the animal's uh, you know, immune defenses, basic immune defenses, and now we have bacteria mixed with whatever product we get. And I, I'll tell you, our immune, our immune system, animals' immune system, uh, they're going to respond to that bacteria, that live bacteria, before a, a killed vaccine. Okay, <laughs> that's where we can end up some of these uh, abscesses and things like that. 
Uh, can you imagine if your kids were going into kindergarten to get their, you know, school required vaccines and, you know, the, the week before school, uh, you just, you know, get them all in to introduce them as a kindergartner to the new area. Um, instead of what we do now and just requiring the vaccines, we just run them all through a single file area and stab them in the neck as they come by and not changing the needle between each kid. Uh, right. As a parent, would you have a problem with that? Hey, I know some, some guys that was, uh, career military that said it wasn't too far from that one. <laughs> when the military. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so when do we, <laughs> right. and, uh, and some of the vaccines they use, they use these little air guns instead of needles. So that, that helps with some of that, but uh, you are right. Um, now how, what about, those are for cause changing needles. What about how often should we, what's routine practice? Um, I, I like to run off the rule of thumb every time I refill my syringe. If I'm using a reloadable syringe, every time I refill it, I change needles, okay? First and foremost, it gets all of us in the habit that we put a new needle on before we go back into the vaccine vial, uh, the deworming vial, the antibiotic vial, whatever we are injecting, we are putting a new needle before going back into that bottle so we don't contaminate the entire vial. Um, so that... What does that run into? About every 10 to 15 head, we end up swapping needles, okay? Uh, but we need, need to be cognizant on uh, uh, kind of a situational awareness. If it's muddy, if there's uh, long-haired cattle with a lot of tag on there and we have to you know, go through some of that dusty hair to get in, we might be changing needles every five head, okay? So it, it's those are basic recommendations, but understanding that we're going to fluctuate that depending on what the environment is giving us. Now, the other stance on that is what about bloodborne pathogen transfer through the tip of a needle? And what in the world am I talking about with that? Anaplasmosis, BLV, bovine leukemia virus, or, you know, uh, leukosis. So leukosis, anaplasmosis, uh, those are bloodborne diseases that can be transferred by the tip of a needle. Okay, and for some operations that are concerned about those diseases and that's a part of their management, there's a lot of operations out there uh, changing needles between each animal. Okay, so it's all dependent on that is what the management is, what you're trying to control. Okay, and uh, so there, there might be a little bit of difference if our, our stocker grower animals versus our cows that we're keeping on place uh, just as a part of our biosecurity. I want to throw something else out there. It got me thinking when we're talking about needles, uh, being being aware of of the situation and and what needle uh, works with the appropriate situation. For instance, like if if we've got a set of baby goats on the ground and we're going to be giving CD and T and whatnot, I'm going to be rolling with a. 20 gauge half inch needle versus an 18 one inch needle on a baby goat because it's it's a lot more safer one I think for the animal but also for me because you're dealing with those little bitty things squirming around uh, is that something we should be considering with cattle uh, should we be looking at if it, if it's something that needs to be uh, sub Q are we looking should we be looking at maybe a three quarter inch needle instead mm -hmm. of an inch and a half something like that yeah no great question i'm glad you brought it up so needle selection is really important and uh, so we have gauges of needles and gauges are just like gauge of a 
you know, shotgun. Okay. So the smaller numbers are actually bigger, bigger in diameter. Uh, so a 12 gauge is obviously much bigger diameter than a 20. It's the same idea with the gauge of our uh, gauge of our needles. Okay. So let's, let's talk about cattle. You use the, uh, you know, goat situation. I'm going to use a cattle situation. Okay. I like to simplify things as much as I can for myself and for everybody else that I work with. Just try to make it easy. Um, think about the hide thickness and density as we go from a baby calf all the way to a mature bull. Okay. We have density differences. Okay. We have thickness differences. Um, and we have sensitivity issues. Okay. That baby calf versus the much larger bull. Um, so when we're thinking about needle selection for animals, I'll start with kind of our, uh, kind of our calf and work our way up. Uh, just like the small goats, generally we like to use a smaller needle because it's, it's less painful. It's less impingement going through that, that fine, very thin hide that we don't need a big thick needle. We can get by with using a much smaller diameter. For cattle, I generally don't go any smaller than an 18 gauge. Okay, so uh, for some of those newborn calves, those real young calves, I might use an 18 gauge needle for those. Uh, as we get into feeder size all the way up to, uh, to cows and bulls, I almost use exclusively 16 gauge. Okay, uh, but then we come into size. Okay, uh, and that's where I split it from IM injections in the muscle versus subcutaneous injections uh, just under the skin. And this is where it's, I use sub one inch needles for subcutaneous injections. And that could be half inch, that could be three quarter, that could be five eighths, depending on what, what you have availability to. Um, when we use the right technique with any of those needles, we can get an effective subcutaneous injection. Um, I am, again, for a young calf, I might use an inch long needle for an IM injection for our cows or larger animals. I'm using an inch and a half. 16 gauge. Okay. So, uh, so for a cow calf operator, you know, having a box of 16 and a box of 18 gauge you know, is a good way to go. You can get just about everything done with that. This has went a whole lot longer than I thought it would. <laughs> yeah, we talked about a lot of different things. Man. Yeah. Is there uh, anything else we need to need to touch on? Well, I, I think we sure covered the basis on kind of giving vaccines and where we put them and how to handle them and uh, the importance behind it. You bet. You bet. And, and hopefully folks will kind of put it to practice and eliminate any, any uh, bad situations on down the line. Well, they're investments in our animals, and, that's how, and when we treat them like investments, we use them appropriately, what they were designed to do uh, through – uh, transportation, through administration, through uh, changing needles and basic sanitation, we get more out of those investments, the better that we, we, we support that investment. Yeah. Well, I will, we can wrap this up, but I got one more question for you. Nick, okay. you can just give a high level answer if you want. Uh, we are right now, it's middle of November in our part of the country. Uh, there's going to be some some folks calving come January, February. Uh, so right now is kind of a time that if if we've got some corrections to make, we should start. Is there is there anything producers need to be having on their mind right now or be looking at 
to try to increase the chances of a successful cabin season? I Yes, okay. And I think the easiest thing that we can do now, and we're a little bit late behind, but we can still make some key differences, is body condition score, okay? Body condition score of our cows today will be a big predictor on our success during the calving season. Uh, not only uh, preparing for the stresses of calving, but preparing them for lactation and even rebreeding next year. Uh, so if they are thin right now, we do have an opportunity to split some of those thin animals off to be able to increase their nutritional basis and their energy levels uh, to make sure that they have the resources and the reserves, the fat reserves inside their body uh, going into that calving season. So I, I think body condition score, now coupling with body condition score, I'll, I'll throw this in too. If producers haven't preg checked yet, okay? If you're a little bit late getting to the preg check to having the vet come out, now is still a prime opportunity where you can still get a pre pregnancy diagnosis done. You can sort off anything that's open, but you can also split your, your herd into earlier calvers versus later calvers, okay? You can feed them a little bit differently. You're not gonna have surprises. You can move those animals that are closer up, uh, you know, into your calving area a little bit sooner. Uh, you can work on those before moving the rest of the group in. So you can almost split your herd and you can manage them appropriately. So uh, for anybody thinking what should be top of mind right now, preparing for calving season here in a couple of months, body condition score and nutrition uh, that of what our cows need today to make sure they're in proper flesh. And two, utilizing uh, pregnancy diagnosis as a management tool uh, by splitting our animals and making better decisions by at smaller groups instead of the entire herd. I'm going to kind of do something here. Mm -hmm. We're, you brought that up, and I, I promise you this isn't planned, AJ. I just happen to have this. Hey, there you go. <laughs> we made these at our office. We oh, yeah. Took the basic information for body condition scoring, and we give credit to the University of Minnesota. Yep. Examples of the cows. These are a very handy tool. They're free. We have them here at the, at the extension office in Barber County. Uh, I, I hand those out whenever I have an opportunity. They don't, they don't cost us little or nothing to, to make. And I've had producers that were kind of hesitant when I gave them to them. I said, just keep that in the pit, you know, in the feed pickup, what have you. You're out riding around, you know, here's your visual that you can kind of get a look and, and, and start grouping stuff up. And it's amazing how how good a tool that is when somebody puts it to practical use had a guy that i would have never thought would have paid attention to that called me about a month or two last year after i gave him one and uh he goes that's a pretty neat little tool he goes we've been able to adjust our feeding and make some changes because of that and so i i, I would just tell people that's a it's a neat Simple little thing. We've got them for free at the extension office. Stop by anytime. If you don't want to come into the office, we've also got them in the hallway in a little kiosk deal that you can just pull it out of there and leave. You don't even have to come in and talk if you don't want, if that's what's <laughs> holding you up. But good stuff, AJ. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to visit with us. And uh, uh, always a pleasure and, and look forward to seeing you on down the road. Hopefully it's some programs or something. We can get you back down to Barber County and, and have a good time. Absolutely. It's always, it's always a pleasure to visit, Justin.
You bet. Take care, buddy. You bet. Thank you for listening to The County Agent. Be sure to like, subscribe, or leave a review.